gaving. Sometimes we may reflect, what is the point of all this? <laughs> what is the point of all this hard work? Right? What is the fruit? Where is this leading? And the Buddha talked about this practice as onward leading. Leading to what, you may ask. Maybe you've had some tastes or glimpse of the possibility or potential, potential or the capacity of the heart. So I think of our practice as having some key foundational principles. One is which we cultivating more through the lens of mindfulness, which is meeting and knowing our experience with awareness and wisdom. And the second is meeting that with heartfulness, with kindness. And out of the combination of those two, of the awareness, wisdom, and kindness, comes a compassionate responsiveness to experience, to life, to the world. And so perhaps you're beginning or feeling perhaps more accessible or established in that quality of the heart that's more responsive or open or attuned. So I want to share a story. It's one of my favorite stories. And I've shared it here before, but I think it bears hearing again. And what I like about this story is its complete ordinariness and how the human heart has the potential in any moment to respond with the quality of compassion, which is the theme of the talk tonight. When we meet another or ourselves with awareness and with kind-heartedness. It's a story about a taxi driver. I arrive at the address and honk the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honk again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away, but instead I put the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, a frail elderly voice responded. I could hear something small being dragged across the floor. After a pause, the door opens. A woman in her 90s stands before me, wearing a print dress, pillbox hat, and a veil pinned on it. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one lived there for years. Would you carry my car out to the bag? She asked. I took the suitcase to the car and returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I told her. I treat my passengers like the way I'd want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good man, she says. We got in the cab, she gave me an address, and asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. And she said, oh, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctors say I don't have very long. And I quietly reached off over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take? 
For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator, pulled up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd been dancing as a girl. And sometimes she'd just ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. The first hint of sun uh, was creasing the horizons. She suddenly said, I'm tired now, let's go. So we drove in silence to the address she'd given me, a small, low, convalescent home. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair as I took her suitcase to the door. Almost without thinking, as I left, I bent and gave her a hug. She held onto me tightly. You have given an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. So there's a phrase that, I'm not sure where this comes from. Maybe Kabir, it goes, be kind to every person because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And I think of this a lot as I move through life, as I teach retreats, as I'm walking down the high street. And we look around a room like this, and people look relatively healthy and relatively sane, relatively happy. <laughs> and, but we have no idea what's really going on. And as a, as a teacher, we have the privilege of hearing from you somewhat very intimately about your life, your struggles, pains, difficulties, losses, physical challenges, family troubles. And we see, and I see, you know, the many burdens that we carry. And it's easy to forget that. And when we forget that, we, 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 we become less attuned we become more reactive when people are difficult, not knowing, not remembering that there's probably suffering driving all kinds of ways that they're being difficult or dysfunctional or reactive. So in life and in practice, we're asked to meet so many difficult things. And this is why in the tradition, in the teachings, there's so much emphasis on compassion. the fundamental foundation of the teachings of the the Buddha spoke to about the nature of suffering, there being no escape. This, the, 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 the word that he used, dukkha, mean difficult to bear, hard to bear. So many things in life are hard to bear. And if we don't have developed a quality of heartfulness, it becomes that much harder to hold our own pain and others' pain and the world's pain. So many ways that we don't get what we want or we get what we don't want. We lose loved ones, we lose what we have, we lose health or youth or whatever it is. 
So how, so the practice is in asking and inviting, how are you meeting, how are you relating to this moment? This moment of difficulty, struggle, loss, anxiety, fear. And nobody escapes. Is, uh, is the way that we meet it infused with the qualities of heartfulness that we're cultivating here in this retreat. Or the nature of uncertainty, the nature of change, the nature of aging, the nature of loss. Right? Many people here struggling, dealing with the aging body, the loss of loved ones, the loss of security, the loss of knowing what they, you know, direction of their lives. I have a dear friend who was um, just uh, finished a life of teaching and was retiring with her husband in Costa Rica. She was a spiritual teacher. And um, they came back to, to Marin. For, she actually was undergoing some chemotherapy for breast cancer. And was back for some treatment before she was going to return to Costa Rica. Came back with her husband, and um, he left one night to go to Spirit Rock, actually, for a class, and took the dog for a walk. And on that on that walk, he was uh, attacked and shot and killed. And this is a lifelong partner, and you know, just about to move into their beautifully built retirement home, and they were completely, obviously, shattering for her and her life. So we never know. Sometimes the, the, the change is sudden. Sometimes it's just the slow, inevitable creaking of the body and the wrinkles and the slow challenges. As I mentioned my dear friend who has Parkinson's and we were talking the other day and he was saying that sometimes he feels like he's imprisoned in his body because the, and the cell walls are getting tighter, which is one of the things that can happen with Parkinson's is there's a tightening of the, of the muscles and very challenging. And has to draw very deeply on his practice to meet that without feeling crushed. So here, you know, just listening to the stories day after day of the things that you're having to meet not so easy. Right? The, f- the way the mind fixates. Anybody's had a fixating mind this retreat? Right? Um, and you see it's like very humbling. Sexual fantasy, food compulsion, thought obsession. Oh, we call the Vipassana vendetta, the person who's really bugging us. You know, we see how petty the mind can get. There was a student of mine talked about how he was here one year and this person had those nylon pants that were really loud and he made up this name for him, Swishy Pants, <laughs> that really bugged him. And his mind got super contracted. He's like, come on, this is just a little sound. But that's how our mind gets. It's humbling. Can we meet the the mind that gets constricted? However... Silly it might be, of course it gets blown up in, in retreat spaces, yogi mind, things get take on bigger proportions. Or the stories we tell ourselves. Right? 
How many painful stories have you told yourself this week about your practice, about your body, about whether people like you or not, someone didn't hold the door for you, see it's proof they don't like me, I'm not welcome here. The stories from the critic, how we're bombarded, how our meditation's hopeless, not good enough, not enlightened enough, not spiritual enough. We don't walk mindful enough. We don't, our metta isn't compassionate enough. These are hard to bear. Or the vulnerability that comes up. Many of you have spoken, spoken to this. The young ones inside, the, the places that we get wounded and scarred as a young being, as a very young, vulnerable, impressionable uh, young boy or girl. And how do we meet the tenderness of that? It's very easy to push away and reject and not want to feel. You know, maybe the messaging that we were told was, you know, toughen up, get over it. Right? But then when we take away those kind of, those harsh reactions, we feel oh, there's a lot of vulnerability here. Vulnerability being human in this skin-bound body. We meet the conditioning, that, and we see the, the conditioning in the way that that influences the way that we meet the world. Maybe your early conditioning was very traumatic. It was a very unsafe environment, maybe physically aggressive. So it instilled a lot of fear or anxiety or nervousness. And that's running in the nervous system completely, seemingly out of your control. And so you walk into a room and there's immediate caution or fear or suspicion or anxiety about uncertainty or strangers. And so we need tremendous compassion for all these ways that we're affected, influenced, conditioned, that we didn't necessarily choose, but yet are, are still running and influencing the way we think, the way we Uh, move in the world, the way we act. Or we see the limitations of our heart. It's very humbling, this practice. Maybe you you came into the retreat thinking, I'm a pretty loving, kind person. (laughs) And then you find that you're wishing love for your friend and and all you can feel is contraction and hurt and vindictiveness or whatever. Or we're, you know, sitting and we're more in this, you know, wider phase where we're extending love to all beings and we've accessed that very comfortably and pleasantly for a while in the meditation and the bell goes and then the thought comes up, nobody better be in my walking spot. That's my favorite walking spot. (laughs) So we go from that expansive heart to incredibly constricted. And it's not like we willed that thought into being. It just came up out of who knows where, out of some scarcity, out of some idea that we need that. So can we be kind with our humanness? Right? So when we meet all the myriad ways that we can suffer, both and these are both small and also sometimes very devastating, what is our response? So as we cultivate 
and, and season and tend to the heart, to the garden of the heart, to the garden of kindness, right? more likely compassion is to respond when we're in pain, when another's in pain. This is from Eli Weissel, Holocaust survivor. I may mispronounce that name. Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. Yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. Practice helps us to bear our suffering well. So each moment there's a seeming choice in how we respond. An invitation to turn, to lean into, to cultivate warmth, friendliness, forgiveness, rather than critique, rejection, etc. I sometimes share, um, I went through this experience and now is some years ago, many years ago now, um, where I had a very intense bout of anxiety. And, um, you know, we all have uh, anxiety as part of the human experience and then sometimes we can get really caught in a very, uh, you know, long kind of spell of that. And that was true for me some years ago, got triggered by certain circumstances outwardly and inwardly. And um, uh, anxiety being one of those human conditions that are really hard to be with. Right? The nature of anxiety is, is hard to settle into because the nature of it is bounces you out. Right? You can see people nodding their heads. Anybody got anxiety here? Right? Probably most of the room. And, um, and it's very humbling because, you know, it's, it's hard to be with. And of course it was humbling for me because I wanted to get rid of it. <laughs> I wanted to, to matter it away and to mindfulness it away and meditate it away and avoid it and suppress it and distract myself and you know the usual things that we do to cope. But when things stay around, it, it forces us to dig deep. It, it forces us to dig into our resources. And so, you know, one of the gifts of the th- these various things that plague us is it, is it invites us to find a, a deeper capacity. And so over time, having realized it wasn't going to necessarily shift from anything that I would do, that I, you know, began to be able to, to soften into it. And to realize that even though I couldn't necessarily change the sort of the, the cluster of anxiety that was really bound in the, in the torso, I could start to soften all around it, my shoulders, my arms, my legs, and, and learn slowly to bring a loving presence from a very spacious place into it, and a, and a place of surrendering into it, softening into it, loving even that which I was afraid of, because I was afraid, you know, at times when the anxiety grows, it grows into panic and a sense of uh, dysregulation. And uh, it was very instructive to learn every day to wake up and to have to keep softening, to keep opening and to keep loving and, and really surrendering to, well, this might, be, this might be my experience from now on. 
Am I okay with living with this part of my being? Can I love this too? Can I not put this out of my heart? And then over some many months, uh, you know, the the various causes and conditions softened, and and I think this loving approach allowed some, you know, ease of that of that torment. Is uh, another place that that I think is one of the hardest places is in the human condition: parenting. How do we bring kindness and compassion and forgiveness to ourselves as parents? So this is a story for the parents in the room. A man is observing this woman in a grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her shopping cart. And as they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies and her mother tells her no. The little girl, of course, begins to whine and fuss and the mother says quietly, now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they come to the candy aisle, and of course the little girl again begins to shout for candy. When told she's not going to have any, she begins to cry. And again the mother says, Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go, and then we'll check out. When they get to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately begins to clamor for gum and bursts into a terrible tantrum upon discovering no gum is purchased. The mother patiently says, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in a few minutes, then we can go home and take a nice nap. The man follows them out to the parking lot and stops her to compliment the mother. I couldn't help noticing how, how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. So this is how we practice self-compassion. Yeah, we turn us there, there. It's okay. The meditation is going to be over in 20 minutes. We'll survive and then we'll go have a nice nap. <laughs> right? And that's often, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful way that we bring compassion to ourselves. We, you know, we talk to ourselves. We soothe ourselves. We comfort the one who is distressed and anxious or freaking out. You know? So what is compassion? Well, I imagine you all have some sense of that. His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about, he says, if you want to know what compassion is, look deeply into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick and fevered child. And as the, the Buddha spoke of, you know, the, the mother cherishing her only child as long as she does breathe. So it's the feeling of concern and love and care in the heart that wishes for the relief of the suffering of, of another or ourselves. And there's an active, dynamic quality to compassion, slightly different to metta, which is the generative warmth and kindness of the heart. Compassion has a more aspirational quality, similar to empathy, and it has the, the cognitive component, right? We can put ourselves in another's shoes. It has an empathic component, empathic resonance component, which is we can feel where someone's at. We actually allow their experience to touch us, right? Compassion to suffer with. And, but it has the additional piece of wishing that suffering to be relieved, wishing to do something to bring some 
relief to the pain. So for example, when we come into the hall and we um, hear somebody crying, maybe in meditation, we, it's, it's that part of the, the being that resonates in our heart very naturally. It's the empathic resonance. And then the cognitive, putting ourselves in other, in other shoes, which is really important, particularly as we become more divided as a culture, also very important. Also a support for compassion. I remember being in Europe, um, it was, I don't know now, two years ago, three years ago, uh, at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis. And uh, there was a huge backlash to, um, uh, from, from many in Europe, uh, especially as in England, to um, the, the flood of refugees. And then one day, the photograph of the Syrian boy, the four-year-old boy who was found dead, washed up on the beach, and, and interviews with his father, um, who was obviously completely and utterly distraught. And that picture turned the crisis from a political crisis to a humanitarian crisis. And the whole mood changed because people could actually put themselves in the shoes of that father and, and that son. And very powerful. And then the wish to relieve suffering. So it's hearing about pain and then actually actively doing something about it. I have a friend who was uh, traveling in um, Cambodia some years ago, many years ago now, and she was in a bar, she was doing some uh, design work for a company, and uh, she overheard these two men talking about uh, sex trafficking. And she confronted them, and they basically ignored her, and she was so enraged and moved by uh, what she was hearing that she started a company based on her own design skills, helping uh, girls from Cambodia who had been uh, uh, involved in the sex trafficking trade and developed this really beautiful model for how to do that work in that country and then it got replicated in many countries. And this is the, this is the seed of compassion that, that, that inspires that, that motivation to act to relieve pain in whatever way we can. And as I hope you're sensing and feeling and knowing, it's also innate. This is not something that you're unfamiliar with. It's simply the, the capacity to care, the, compa- the, the capacity to help another, a friend, a loved one, yourself, to ease the pain, to ease the distress. It might be calling someone, it might be you know, holding somebody. It may be the way that you, um, you know, share your resources. This is, this is you know, very, uh, you know, if someone falls down in front of you on the street, you know, you may be picking them up before you even think about who they are and what, you know, what you're doing. Right? It's just there, right? We know this. This is not something, you know, when I used to hear about the word compassion, it sounded very lofty some kind of grand, right? But it's just caring, responsive caring to, to pain right? that we all know. There's a story, I don't know where I read about this story of this, uh, it was a competition to find the most compassionate child. Seems like a weird competition. Anyhow, <laughs> the story goes, this young boy won the competition because this, his story, well, I guess, most touched the judges. He was neighbors with a, an elderly couple and, and um, the, 
the, the wife had died and so the, the man was left alone and, and the story goes, he was walking, the little boy was walking down the street with his mom and uh, he saw the, the old man on the porch uh, just sitting in his rocking chair and the uh, little boy runs up the garden path and uh, sits on the man's lap and just stays there for a while. And then uh, eventually comes down, comes back to his mom and the mom says, oh, what were you doing? What were you saying uh, to our neighbor? What, what were you doing? And he said, oh, I didn't say anything. I was just helping him cry. Yeah. So in the same way that, you know, I hear stories of cats and dogs, you know, coming on, you know, lying on our chest or our belly or coming by our side when we're sad or when we're grieving. Right? This is an innate response. We feel it. Right? And, you know, we, it can be blocked in many ways, you know, by our thoughts and ideas and fears or judgments or, you know, but it's there. There's a lovely story um, about the chimp Washo, who is the, one of the first um, uh, chimpanzees to use American Sign Language. And um, he obviously had a very close relationship with his um, keeper and, uh, and was told that the, the keeper had lost uh, a child uh, in, in pregnancy. And, uh, and so the chimp Washo signs the word for cry. Chimpanzees don't cry, they don't have tears, but he signed the word for cry. And then he traced on, uh, no, she traced on her own cheek the path a tear would take on a human being, and then signed the words, please person hug. Please person hug. Right? Very beautiful, very simple. Right? That's the quality of compassion, right? That we want to attend to, we want to care. And of course, like many of these qualities, um, you could say it begins with our capacity. I'm not sure if it really begins, but it's certainly nurtured by our own capacity to turn towards ourselves and our own suffering. And there's plenty of suffering in the world, limitless, but there's also plenty of suffering here. And how we turn to the suffering in the world and friends and strangers will partly be influenced by how we respond here. How do you turn towards your own physical pain, your heartbreak, your loneliness, your loss, your fear, your vulnerability? Right? With, with openness or with trepidation or with resentment or with compassion? Right? So just to be curious. And where, where is it possible to open and where is it that's like, no, I'm not going there. It's too painful. It's a, it's a bottomless pit or it's too intimidating, or I f- it feels weak, or I think I should be over it. Right? Lots of stories about why we don't go into our own uh, tender places. And at the same time, we also need to be wise and balanced. Right? The, the practice that we're doing, whether it's loving kindness, compassion, always balanced with awareness and wisdom. So, when we've, as we've shared um, with many of you, you know, at times there's a place to to go into the sadness and loss and and pain, and at other times it's really wise and skillful to back off, to go for a walk, to take in the beauty of spring. Right? So we're balanced. So we're not just diving in without 
wisdom. We're, we're cultivating a balanced heartfulness. So Kristen Neff, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, who's done a lot of research around self-compassion, talks about three key components, which I think really is a lot of what you've been doing here. First is we, we are kind and understanding when our, about our suffering rather than judging. There's kindness and there's understanding rather than judgment. And we recognize that pain and difficulty are part of being human. That it's not an aberration, we're not doing it wrong that we're suffering. And thirdly, it's the ability to face rather than avoid the pain. So I'm going to share some words. This is a poem that I wrote some years ago about this turn, which I think is a really important uh, part of any practice, is when we learn to turn towards rather than turn away, lean into rather than lean away. Your only duty is not to run from here even if the whole of loss burns deep in your belly, and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day. You could pretend, try putting putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that never works, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there's no choice but to surrender, to turn towards your loneliness and the empty places within you've spent a lifetime running from. Embracing them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fallen to the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that is waiting that is always right here. So each moment we're being invited to turn into. And as we develop this quality of compassion, one of the interesting that arises from it is a certain resiliency. And this is a subject of a lot of study and research since there's so much burnout and stress in work, in healthcare particularly. Um, Tanya Singer and others have done some really interesting research about how compassion, when we can have the capacity to stay steady in the face of suffering, that actually creates a certain ballast, a certain buoyancy, a certain capacity. And I certainly see that in the years that I was a therapist, um, when compassion was present as part of my experience, um, the, the, the session wasn't tiring, no matter how difficult the pain that was present. I had a friend and colleague came to study on a retreat, and she uh, was a long-term, is a long-term psychiatrist, works with um, uh, mostly in, in oncology, cancer patients, mostly uh, uh, young adults, and told me that she had these filing cabinets and filing cabinets full of patients who'd passed. And that's the nature of working in oncology. And um, due to various reasons, including just the professionalism of that, the role, she felt like she was holding this huge dam of pain. And, um, and she wasn't sure what to do. 
And she says, "Just as it just feels like there's this flood of tears just waiting to come out, and but I'm 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 afraid of feeling overwhelmed." And my instruction was to her with three words: was let it, let it rain, let it pour, let the tears flood. Which she did. And then about a year and a half later. Um, over that, just just allowing that tenderness and the vulnerability and the pain, it felt like she was thawing, and um, that that capacity to release and grieve also allowed her to really become much more, um, even more effective. I would say in her work, gave her more resilience rather than the sense of burning out or feeling overwhelmed. So maybe you've been sensing as you turn to yourselves over these days and the pain of yourself or the others, how, the, how pain tenderizes the heart and also gives a certain resiliency, a certain buoyancy, that you have a strength or capacity. You know, so often we're such a, we have such a knee-jerk response to pain, either with fear of being overwhelmed fear of not wanting to take on someone else's suffering. And so there's often a kind of a wall. And then we actually open and we let it in. We feel like, oh, I can, I can handle this. this is, I can, there's capacity here. And it's very beautiful. I mean, there's a certain sweetness in compassion, even when we're dealing with the pain of ourselves. So what gets in the way? What closes our heart? Rumi says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. Your task is not to seek for love, but only to seek out those things that we've put up as blocks. So the near enemy to uh, compassion is pity. It's the keeping the suffering at a distance. Oh, there, that, that looks terrible over there. Ooh, you poor love. Ooh, ooh. Hope that goes away soon. Ooh. And a friend who um, uh, lost both parents at a young age and she felt like there was so much pity rather than compassion because it was, you know, it's an overwhelming situation that she felt like when she was feeling pity, it felt like it burned her skin. It was that, it was so ill-attuned. You know? Maybe people doing their best, but for her experience, it was very painful. And then the, the well, I'll read something first before I talk about the far enemy. This is from Edward Frost. Pity will not set free, sorry, pity will not help others because pity does not feel others as part of oneself, but as foreign, separate, and unconnected. Pity, the near enemy, may masquerade well as compassion, but only compassion knows the pain so intimately as to be unable to rest until the other is free of it. So the far enemy of compassion, one of them is cruelty. And I you know, tend to think most of us are not so cruel. I don't imagine you go home and you're horrible and mean and yelling and to others. But I'd say, I'd say certainly 
we're cruel to ourselves. And, and I'm sure you've had to listen to some of the cruel voices of the critic, of the judge, the meanness, the harshness, the putting down, the, the undermining, demeaning voices. And this is really worth looking at. And to see the pain and the harshness that comes from the critic. And sometimes we need a fierce compassion that says, no, stop, enough, this is not true, not helpful, not accurate. Go bother somebody else. Go have a nice day. Another obstacle to compassion is just getting wrapped up in ourselves. We just get busy, rushing, fast-paced, multitasking. They did this interesting study on a university campus. Um, I think it was for um, uh, pupils in religious studies. And they had, they gave um, these students a test. They didn't know they were being tested. Um, They were in a classroom and they were told it was really, really important to get to the next class on time. And they purposely left, let them out of class a little late, so they had to rush to the next class. And, one, and they left one by one, and they'd set up a, 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 one of the researchers who would purposely trip over and fall in front of them pain, painfully um, and to see if the students would respond. And, and so they had another control group that were told uh, to leave the class to get to the other class, but they could take that time, no rush. And the class that were rushing to the next class, not one of them stopped to help the person who had fallen over and was hurt, but much more so those who weren't rushing. And then we can see that in a day. You know, maybe you know we're you know rushing to work and we see a homeless person in the street who looks like they're you know who knows. You know, and and we in, in the busyness in our haste, we either don't see them, or don't pause long enough to find out. Or sometimes we're a little numbed by the overload of pain. You know, whether it's climate change, whether it's the the immensity of the suffering of refugees, or you name any number of uh, ways that we are subject to. You know, and hearing about uh, and and experiencing. Uh, pain. I know I had an office downtown San Francisco, an old therapy office, and um, the level of homelessness and the the multi the multi uh, layered uh, issues for the homelessness in this particular neighborhood. A lot of them, you know, clearly had also had PTSD. Uh, a lot of them were veterans and. Um, you know, just incredibly painful and complex. And I could often feel as I walked to work, the immensity of the suffering, it, sh- it just shut me down. Rather than feeling compassion, so at times it was overwhelming. Just seeing the, the, the extent of the pain and the, and the complexity of how to intervene effectively. Hmm? So just to notice, where, where does the heart close? And also to notice where does the heart, where's the heart growing in capacity, right? One of the beautiful things that I have certainly seen for myself and in others as we develop heartfulness is we develop more capacity to love, to care. I know for myself having, you know, worked with my own frozenness and numbness um, from a young age, you know, that there's, there's, more, there's more care. You know, having gone through my own anxiety attacks, um, meltdowns, uh, you know, very lo- dark, 
nights of the soul, which were more like, not one night, let me say that. <laughs> you know, years, you know, some of those, you know, lost, confused, dealing with early traumas, right? It tenderizes the heart. And out of that, when we meet that and work with that with compassion, comes resilience, comes capacity, comes a certain courage, comes a certain fearlessness. It's a poem from a poet called Roshani, and I think, I don't know much about her story, but I have a sense that um, she knows this terrain of how in the very broken and desperate parts of ourselves, we also find tremendous healing. She writes, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable, a a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility, fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There's a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. As the heart grows, as the capacity of compassion grows, we can also hold more paradox. I remember very distinctly a, a, a student here on the retreat who was um, uh, wrestling with how can you wish all beings to be happy when half of them are eating the other half, which is true, you know. And I said, that's a really great thing to hold. Let's see what you find out. And she takes a walk up the, this little lane here, just past the pond, and uh, it's in winter, and all of a sudden she's walking past these trees and there's a bunch of feathers floating down onto the road. And she looks up and there's a hawk eating a chickadee, a little bird. And she's wanting both to be well. She's wanting the chickadee to, to be well, but she's wanting the hawk to also have enough food. Right? To the mind it's incomprehensible, to the heart can hold that paradox. Or the heart that when we hear of a terrorist bombing or senseless shootings, and we feel compassion equally for the the victims as for the perpetrator who's going to be living and carrying that harshness and violence in their heart and minds for the rest of their lives. It's the compassion of the heart that Dr. King so often spoke about in 1956, in January, while speaking to followers in the Montgomery bus boycott, a bomb exploded at Dr. King's home. His wife's sleeping baby daughter and a visitor escaped injury. As King rushed to the scenes, so too did hundreds of neighbors and supporters armed with knives, handguns, rifles, and makeshift weapons ready to do battle with local segregationist authorities. Dr. King's voice rose amidst the rubble and calmed the angry throngs. He who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. I want you to love your enemies, be good to them, love them, and let them know you love them, for what we are doing is right, what we are doing is just. This is a vast heart that can hold tremendous 
suffering, racism, hatred, and still find a deeper, a deeper ground. With our suffering and the tender-hearted response to it, we also see our common humanity. We see, you know, it's one of the things that most uh, uh, allows us to feel that sense of connection, that sense of humility, that sense that we need each other, that we're not alone, that we're in this together. It's a beautiful thing that arises out of suffering when it's met with kindness. It's met with compassion. And I think about the years that Mandela spent in Robben Island prison and his very powerful intention coming out to not, uh, in the, in like in the story of Dr. King, to not uh, have retru- retributive justice, but to have restorative justice. Right? Very deep-heartedness to, to rise above tremendous you know, decades and centuries of oppression and suffering. And this is this is the this is the capacity of the human heart. So sometimes it feels like when we're here, you know, we're just going about our little old meditation and little, you know, maybe well, maybe happy and um but the the ripples, you know, uh, are vast, and the potential is, is is beautiful. Whether it's to ourselves, whether it's to someone in front of us, whether it's to a complete stranger, and our heart has the capacity to access very deep realms of compassion. I'm going to share a little poem from Mark Nepo, who's talking about his brother. And it's a, it's a very lovely uh, example of how someone lives this quality. For my brother. You were there when I had cancer. And now you've carried Dad through the rickety bridge of his bones to whatever time is left. And somehow, you're attending the argument that is our mother, like a cattle without a handle. For all your gifts, your care, your, well, your, your care is the well that has no bottom. And though hoisting it up bucket by bucket turns you inside out, that you know no other way and that makes you my hero. Though hoisting it up bucket by bucket, drop by drop, turns you inside out, that you know no other way makes you my hero. Beautiful expression of compassion in the midst of, you know, what was a very difficult family situation. So as we, you know, coming to the latter part of this retreat to um, bringing this quality into your awareness. When pain arises in yourself, 
when the pain arises in what you see around you, when pain arises in all the ones that you're wishing metaphor, for the ways that you're holding the suffering of the world, whether it's the suffering of endangered species, the suffering in your neighborhoods, the suffering in your families, the suffering of racism, the suffering of bigotry, the suffering of the endless amount of suffering in the world. Can we be present to this quality of heartfulness that, that's responsive, that wishes the relief of suffering? And I'll close with the words of Shantideva, who is a great Buddhist teacher and beautiful author of um, The Way of the the, Bo- the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And compassion is really what gives birth to this beautiful quality in the Buddhist tradition the wishes for the relief of suffering. You know, it's what inspired the Buddha after he had many awakened disciples to say, go forth for the many out of compassion for the many. Bring forth these teachings, the good in the beginning, middle and end, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit of all. Right? That's how these teachings started. Right? Seeing how human beings suffer and offering Uh, various uh, ways to relieve that suffering. So Shantideva writes, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So may we, in our practice here and as we um, re-enter our lives in a few days, May we take the goodness of this heartfulness and see how it ripples into a genuine wish and action to relieve suffering in ourselves and others. So let's sit for a moment. beings everywhere, including ourselves, be free of suffering. Thank you for your presence and your heartful practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.